Blog Talk Radio. You are listening to the Four Person Show on Blog Talk Radio. We are your enthusiastic and faithful Catholic apostolate. For more information about what we do, go to our show page at thefourpersons.com and our blog site at thefourpersons.net. To call in tonight with your comment or question, dial 515-602-9655. The number, again, is 515-602-9655. everybody. Boy, this is fun. <laughs> this is our third show today. Our third show today on this last day of June 2023, a Friday. And we've got a very special guest. We are so excited. A very special guest and a subject that's near and dear to my heart. It's just something that I just absolutely love to talk about. So let's welcome our guest, uh, Swan Sona, how you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing great. Can you hear me all right? Uh, we got you loud and clear. So what we want to uh, start off with is um, I mean, you're certainly, you know, everybody that I know considers you a rock star in, <laughs> in <laughs> Catholic apologetics. Talk about the sites that you're affiliated with and, and, and what you're doing and where people can see your work, and then we'll go from there. Sure. So uh, my name is Swan Sona. Sounds kind of like the bird and um, or exactly like the bird rather. And uh, I've worked with Catholic Answers before and I do time work with them from time to time. I have articles and other podcasts with them. I've done work with the Council of Trent, Trent Horns podcast. And I have my own YouTube channel called Intellectual Catholicism. It's also on Apple Podcasts if you're interested in that. And I guess the last thing I'll mention is I have an academia page. Uh, If you go to academia.edu and you just search up my name, you'll see some of my PowerPoints and presentations and even some of the papers that I've given on uh, subjects related related to Catholic theology. And I'm going to be a student at Harvard Divinity School this fall. So those are some of my credentials. That's fantastic. What I'd like you to do is after the show, at some point when you have time, if you could provide me with all the links that you've mentioned and we'll go back and we'll put them in the, in the uh, show, show notes of the archive so that the, whenever anybody in the future, um, you know, listens to this show, they can review all that. Um, so once again, we certainly are, are thrilled to have you with us. And, um, I want to talk about the subject that we're talking about last night. The last show that we just did with apologist Luke Haskell, I love how he keeps talking about the Bible as a seamless fabric. And there really is a difference between the way that we approach Scripture and the way that it's approached by a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters. They kind of have a 
uh, a lot of them ha- kind of have a very fragmented view of scripture. They don't tie it all together, all the different sections of scripture, the Old Testament to the New Testament, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and if you don't approach the scriptures that way, you really can't understand them, can you? Right. I mean, one of the most important things about Scripture is that it is God-breathed, and God, uh, through the mess of human beings and human history, has been writing this grand story. And so uh, everything should come together in the end. There should be a grand unity to Scripture. Uh, Now, to be fair to Protestants, there are a lot of great what we call Protestant or or rather biblical theologians, Mm -hmm. uh, people like G.K. Beale, Thomas Schreiner, and others and, you know, there are attempts to try and find, like, what is the unifying theme of the Bible? Is it the idea of temple? Is it covenant? Uh, sacrifice? You know, these sorts of things. Obviously, Christ is at the center of it all. But I will say this, though. Um, you know, I'm a Baptist convert to Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And when I became Catholic, or rather, um, when I studied the Old Testament and I saw, like, how essential and crucial it is for the New Testament, I realized that when I became Catholic and in, in Catholic theology, the old Testament is so indispensable. And that makes right. sense. I mean, because the old Testament is most of the Bible that we have. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot there that we need to make sense of. Yeah. Now, you know, I'm a building engineer and uh, air conditioning technician. I'm a tradesman by, by trade. And I love to use this analogy because I think it, I think it fits. Um, in uh, the analogy that I use that corresponds to our trade is, okay, if I was looking at a building and I wanted to understand how that building is put together, I have to mm-hmm. go to the blueprints and right. I have to study the blueprints. The blueprints tell me exactly how this building is put together, how the uh, electrical infrastructure is put together, how the plumbing is put together, um, you know, how the, how the, Mechanical systems are put in place, how the walls are built and framed out. I, I find all of that through the blueprints. On the other hand, if I just looked at the blueprints and didn't look at the finished building, I can't understand the blueprints without looking at what the finished product looks like. So the mm-hmm. Old Testament is the blueprints. And, and to understand the blueprints, you need to look at the finished building by the same token. To understand the finished building, you need to look at the blueprints. And they both feed off of each other. And, mm-hmm. and I just really love that analogy. I love to look at the Old Testament as, as the blueprints. And if you approach it that way, then you really do understand. So now I want to get into this, into this four senses of Scripture because this is fascinating to me how you can read an individual scriptural passage and it can have multiple layers of meaning to it. It, it not one meaning to it, but multiple layers of meanings, and that's what we're going to get into. So the first sense of Scripture is the literal sense. Explain what that means, please. Right. So the literal sense just refers to, in their original historical sense, what are the letters of the page telling you? So to give you just a simple example, Jesus wept. (laughs) Well, it literally means that there was one Jesus of Nazareth, he had tears on his face. Uh, right. So that's what it tells you, right? And you don't maybe theologize or infer beyond that. You just look at what is the literal historical meaning of the text. Right. But in, in some cases, for instance, on, on Ken Litchfield's show, we, we talked about this, 
where it says that um, certain people were baptized and their whole household. So now right. you get into the question of, well, does that include little kids or does that mean only the adults that were in that household? So we tend to we tend to take the literal and kind of inject our own interpretation into it, don't we? Well, you know, sometimes the literal interpretation doesn't mean it's going to be the most straightforward interpretation, right? Like the sometimes the letters on the page don't give you all the information that you would like. Um, but when sometimes some what, what some theologians will do, and maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but what the church fathers have done is, you know, they wouldn't view the text of any one book in isolation. They saw the Bible as totally connected, as we said, united. And so you could go from Matthew to Isaiah to figure out what was going on in Matthew. Right. right. And so, um, the literal sense was just one layer, but there's so much more. Right. So now, Swan, doesn't the literal uh, sense also speak to the genre of the writing? For instance, uh, uh, you know, the book of Revelation is written in a totally different genre than Leviticus, is written in a totally mm, different yeah. genre than, than the Psalms or the Gospels. Doesn't the literary uh, uh, sense also refer to that? Yeah, I mean, so the literal sense has to include the genre because uh, if you're, if, for example, in, in the Psalms, it talks about how the trees are clapping their hands, right? Um, you could interpret that literally <laughs> in the sense that you think the trees actually have hands and they're clapping like human right. beings, but right. that would be missing what uh, David was saying in that Psalm, right? Um, and so, the, you know, people often talk about with the literal sense, the authorial intent, so what did the author want you to get from it? Uh, what did he mean by the words that he was using? What genre was he using? These sorts of things. So, right. uh, yeah, that's what the literal would encapsulate. Right. And and Jesus was not averse to using hyperbole. He he, he did use hyperbole <laughs> in some in some instances yeah. and and allegory and you know like I like I explained to a friend of mine one time I said you know when he talked about hyperbole and I said listen. If I told you that I have the weight of the world on my shoulders right now, you mm -hmm. understand what I'm saying. You understand that, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm downtrodden, I'm troubled, I've got worries. But you wouldn't interpret that literally, like, like you said, as in I'm literally carrying the earth on my shoulders. So, um, again, you know, we have to use mm -hmm. uh, – common sense has to be injected into some of these. All right, let's move to the next one, the allegorical sense. Now – and before we jump into it, passages can be both literal and allegorical, correct? Yeah, okay, so this is like, you know, great conversation topic. Let me try and maybe move a few steps back really quick. So okay. just really quick with like the literal sense, uh, it's often nicknamed the historical sense, right? And that might better get at what we mean because literal means so many things nowadays that you know, uh, it can make us think that we mean something very, let's say, um, actual when in fact it's hyperbolic, you know, so you talk about Jesus. I mean, Jesus could talk about, you know, taking out your eye if it causes you to sin. I don't think he quite meant to actually literally do that, right. but, right. um, although some church fathers <laughs> thought so and they later regretted it, but, um, <laughs> anyway, so there's that now, uh, there's a literal sense and you get now into the spiritual sense. And the spiritual sense has three different, let's say, modes, 
right? Or three different versions or three different ways that you can spiritually read a text. Um, and so when you are looking at an allegorical interpretation, I mean, an allegory just means a symbol. So you're looking at how one symbol, one thing symbolizes another thing. This is also often called the typological interpretation. Although, um, as you pointed out, right, there are times where these categories can over, uh, overlap. And so, for example, when Paul said that Jesus is a type, or excuse me, Adam is a type of the one who is to come, that is Christ, and that Christ is the second Adam, uh, Adam's obviously the first man, right, the first Adam. Uh, Paul isn't just making a poetic commentary there. What he is literally saying is that God has somehow in his wisdom arranged history such that there would be this first Adam, and then there would be this second Adam, and the second Adam would undo what the first Adam did. So, uh, you know, if you're reading Paul in his genre, in his context, then that would actually be a version of typology or, or allegory that is literal. Uh, right. Now, in order to make sense of like the other categories, because now somebody, somebody might be confused, right? Like uh, they're all overlapping. I would say mm -hmm. in the perspective of you as the reader, you read the scriptures in four senses, and we'll talk about the other two. So, for example, like the Bible itself could be making through its letters, through the literal meaning, a typological point. But you as the reader uh, might be seeing something and you read it and you connect it, even though the Bible maybe doesn't explicitly do so. And that would be an allegorical reading. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to distinguish between when the Bible itself is doing the typology, right, which would fall under the literal sense. And then when we as the exegetes are kind of doing the typology, exegetes right. being the interpreters. So, so let me ask you this, and I'm not trying to split hairs here, but this question sure. is really for my, for my own understanding. How would you draw or differentiate between something that is strictly typological uh, and something that may be typological but is also allegorical or symbolic? Uh, so so mm. let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In 1 Kings chapter 2, we clearly see apology of the queen mother and right. her two sons, one who is the king and one is who, who is petitioning the queen mother. So we're clearly seeing a typology of Mary there. Um, mm -hmm. So translate that or, or, or contrast that to like some of Joseph's dreams or some of the wild um, uh, symbolic visions that we see in Daniel or Ezekiel or, or, or Revelation where these, where these, you know, really, really broad, um, and descriptive symbols like, uh, you know, like the whore of Babylon and the dragon and, and these, you know, really descriptive symbols that are uh, shown to display something. So how would you take a, a literal typology like the queen mother in first Kings and, and contrast it with one of these symbolic things that we see? Right. I think that the, the answer to this question is whether or not the Bible actually in its text somehow, some way makes the connection. So to give you an example, um, scholars often talk about textual illusions where you might see an echo of a scripture uh, in the, from the Old Testament being used in the New Testament, or Jesus will maybe 
quote from the Old Testament, but he slightly modifies it for his purposes. Um, and so what you want to see are kind of, let's say, in the words themselves, something that gives you an indication that the author themselves is seeing the connection that you're trying to make. So to give you a simple example, uh, when in the Gospel of Luke, it talks about how God overshadowed Mary, and it uses that Greek word, epitiazo, uh, which is what is used in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, it uses that same word, epitiazo, for um, the, when God overshadowed the tabernacle and the ark. And so there you see very clearly then that Luke is making a very intentional connection between what's in the old and what's in the new, right? He's putting in the effort in the text itself to make you see it. Whereas, you know, an allegorical interpretation would be something like, I've seen some people try to argue that um, there's a, let's see, a connection between um, Mary Magdalene in the garden weeping and Eve, right, in the garden weeping after the fall. But, you know, uh, Mary Magdalene is kind of like the new Eve in a sense here because she um, gets to see Adam in glory in the resurrection, right. the second Adam. Um, but now, now that's a beautiful interpretation, and that's valid, right? The church recognizes that it's valid in the sense that you don't just dismiss it, and you can get real spiritual fruit from it. And in fact, because it, Scripture is divinely written, God would want you to see all kinds of connections and nourishment spiritually. But technically right. speaking, it wouldn't fall under the literal sense because the text isn't making a concentrated effort for you to connect the two. Yeah. I, I guess the distinction that I was trying to make is like the difference between something that's, that's type – like clearly there was literally an Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. There was literally mm -hmm. a box carried on poles and, and uh, went before the uh, you know Israel in battle, and yet – that Ark of the Covenant was a typology of the Blessed Mother. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and I guess I'm trying to contrast that with like in Revelation 12 where it says the, the dragon just swept a third of the oh, stars yeah. from the sky and threw them down to earth. Well, clearly that's not meant to be taken literally. It's a symbolic thing. So I guess yeah. that's, that's what I was trying to say. So, all right, let's move on to the next one. Now, the tropological sense, that's the moral sense of the passage. That's the, the moral lesson that we're supposed to get from the passage, correct? Yeah, I mean, this is really simple because for anybody who's listening who, you know, listens to the priest give the homily, the pastor give the sermon, this is probably the most common form of the scriptures that you're going to, or sense of scripture that you're going to hear. I mean, there are examples left and right. Uh, you know, the story of Jonah, right? Uh, he, wants, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And then uh, he has to go through uh, three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the sea monster, and then he's cast down to shore. What does that teach us? What does that tell us? How do you interpret that story? Well, you can morally extract or get that lesson from the story uh, that you're supposed to trust God right, and not chicken out when it's time to stand up for him when he calls you, right. when he sends you. So, you know, this is a very common and I think beautiful and meaningful interpretation of the scriptures. Right, right. And then the final one is the enagogical. Now that would all that would kind of refer to, whereas typology is kind of pointing from the Old Testament forward to mm. us. The enagogical is kind of pointing forward from us to future times. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean basically what you're doing is you're looking at the text of 
the Bible and you're trying to see if there are kind of allusions or hintings at the afterlife of what uh, it will be like when, you know, not only the afterlife, but like when Christ returns, the final judgment, you're, some people call this the mystical sense of scripture. I mean, so to give you some examples, uh, take the Sabbath, right? When you rest on the seventh day, some people believe that that was an allusion to how in heaven we'll finally be at rest because we'll be with God and the creation will be complete. Our lives will be complete. Uh, you can also use other examples like the, um, the Ark of Noah. I mean, Jesus does this, for example, when he talks about how, when he talks about the wicked generation somewhat, and he gives an allusion to how in the final judgment, uh, they're going to be knocking on the doors of the Ark like uh, the, in the days of Noah, and God will shut the door. You know, so these are just some examples of uh, how you, you can interpret text and scripture as clues into what the afterlife might be like. Mhm. Mhm. So would would uh, would that be like when Jesus talks about the parable of the uh, of the wedding feast and the person who shows up uh not, you know, in the proper mm. garment and uh is, is this an example? Yeah, so this is it's always interesting because um look, the, the Bible itself <laughs> can literally do the spiritual uh, senses of scripture, right? So the Bible can literally have typology. It can literally have a tropological interpretation or a tropological interpretation. It can also literally have the mystical or anagogical interpretation, right? You, you could, the Bible can literally do this. Um, so that could fall under the literal sense. My personal perspective though, is that when you as the exegete, as the interpreter go in and you see these things, which the Bible not, might not be like explicitly with concentrated effort trying to bring out, but you get it out for spiritual nourishment and, and so on and so forth, then um, it wouldn't fall necessarily under the literal sense. It would be like you're reading scripture in the anagogical sense, in the, the tropological or tropological sense. So to answer mm-hmm. your question, um, like there, when, when Jesus is talking about in parables, right, the uh you know what the end of the world is going to be like well when you read him in the literal sense you have to understand the genre that he's speaking in which is like an anagogical genre an anagogical sense right he's using well even you could type in put an allegory to some extent but it's mainly anagogical because jesus is using these images to kind of describe what the final judgment and the final glory is going to be like um but you get that through first understanding him on the literal basis, right? It's not me as the exegete looking at that story and saying, oh, I'm going to interpret it in the anagogical sense. It's I'm interpreting it literally what Jesus is saying, and it's an anagogical interpretation or it's an anagogical right. sense. Right. So, Swan, let's, let's, go, let's go back to, okay, you were a Baptist, and uh, kind of walk me through how these – kind of tools of interpretation mm-hmm. contributed to the to the evolution of your starting to see uh catholicism in in the in the scriptures <laughs> kind of walk us through that yeah i mean that's a huge story i could talk about it all night but um i suppose like just to talk a little bit about myself as i said before as you mentioned i'm a baptist convert so i was raised um by my father's a baptist minister My mother has some theological education. And so for me growing up, scripture and Christ were at the center of everything. And that's a beautiful part of my upbringing. There was no regrets there 
um, I think it was precisely those things, Scripture and Christ, that led me to the Catholic Church. So um, I guess one thing to emphasize just about each of these four senses, the literal sense uh, or the historical sense, whatever you want to call it, uh, during the Protestant Reformation, Luther and other reformers claimed that they were kind of recovering the literal sense of the scriptures because they were worried that what Catholics were doing were basically, you know, getting too much in the spiritual and missing what the literal words are saying. Um, and basically using, you know, the other sense of the scripture to justify all kinds of, of doctrines that weren't there actually in the text. Right. And so when we're talking to Protestants, I think that that's something to keep in mind even if they aren't explicitly aware of, you know, the history of the Reformation and Luther, they're thinking we want it in the literal text, <laughs> these doctrines. We want everything kind of neatly right. laid out and kind of told to us, right? And it's like, yeah, well, you know, to varying degrees, you, you can do that. But these other senses of scriptures, I, I, I think, are really important. So uh, to move on then to the allegorical or typological sense, one of the biggest things that convinced me of Catholicism was when I studied the papacy. And especially mm -hmm. when I looked at Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, when Jesus right. says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And Christ there was alluding to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. Right. When yep. under the, the administration, steward. right. Under the administration of King Hezekiah, uh, you know, there's a corrupt prime minister named Shebna. God replaces him and puts Eliakim in his place. And he says to Eliakim, you know, I'll give to you the key of the house of David. Whatever you open, none shall shut. Whatever you shut, none shall open. So I realized that Jesus was literally <laughs> making a typological connection. That's important because it wasn't me as the exegete, as the interpreter, reading the text allegorically. And making that connection myself, it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, in the literal sense, making that typological connection. Uh, and when I saw that, then I saw that what Jesus was saying, because basically, you know, there, there's, a, there's a subtle distinction between allegory and typology. If you don't mind, I'll just explain it really quickly. Yes, um, so with allegory, obviously allegory refers to symbols. So if you think about like Animal Farm, how the animals represent, you know, various uh, political movements and people during... Uh, the, Ru the Russian Revolution and all that. Right, um, right. You know, as, they, they as stand on in the C.S. Mm. Lewis books. <laughs> right. right, right. Another great example. Um, yeah. Whereas the typological sense is a little bit different because what typology does, and oftentimes among the fathers and any, even in Catholic literature, they kind of treat the two as uh, interchangeable, but there is a subtle distinction. With the typological sense you're really concerned with historical patterns that are divinely intended and orchestrated. Right. So, you know, you might have, for example, uh, Clement, who's a, the fourth bishop of Rome, writing in the first century. He has a letter called First Clement, and he talks about how, you know, Rahab's uh, red scarf or red band uh, represents the blood of Christ. Okay, well, that's an allegorical interpretation uh, that's not a typological interpretation, although he might have meant it typologically, but that's a bit of a stretch, right? Right. But when Jesus himself is saying, hey, you know, I'm giving you the keys, Peter, just like I gave the keys to Eliakim in the Old Testament. Typology is saying you need to view these two things in connection to each other because God wants you to see a connection between them. Yeah. He yeah. wants you to see them as a pattern, as connected. Yeah. And so yep. 
and, and so for me, like when I saw that, when I saw other things with the Blessed Mother, I was kind of like, you know, these are divinely intended. God wants me to see these things. And so I, as an interpreter, would fail if I didn't see what the Lord wanted me to see. Right, right. And then a classic example that jumps off the page to me is when Gabriel says to Mary uh, about her son, and God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So right. here's a connection that, that very clearly God wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Davidic king. And, and, and I made this argument to a friend of mine one time. You know that was asking about you know why we elevate Mary and all, and and I and I looked at him and said, well, okay, Jesus is clearly making uh, God is clearly making connection that Jesus is a fulfillment of the Davidic king, and he said he said okay, said, well then who's the queen mother? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so it, it's kind of again this goes back to what I opened up with that a lot of times um, the scriptures are not. I want one scripture that shows me everything. It's it's sometimes it's two plus two equals four and plus two equals six plus two equals eight. Mm-hmm. You you kind of add it together and and look at it in a whole rather than rather than just in in pieces. But I'm kind of surprised at your answer that that the papacy was the kind of the first that it came <laughs> together. That's that's unusual. Yeah, I mean. You know, I, I started realizing when I read other like Protestant theologians arguing against Catholicism, because for me, like I, I'm very serious about my studies about mm-hmm. when I investigate something, you know, don't go for the low hanging fruit, go for the best of the best on the other side. Right. And so I did that with Catholicism and I did that with Protestantism as I was investigating my own Protestant beliefs. And uh, a lot of them were saying, you know, it really hinges on the papacy. Uh, because that is the distinctive doctrine of Catholicism, that if you get that, you get everything else. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, and so I, I realized, I, okay. I, I agree with you 100%. To me, the flip side of that is that, mm-hmm. that Protestants, Protestantism stands or falls on Sola Scriptura. If Sola Scriptura falls, there's no pretense for, for Protestantism to stand. Uh, it, you, you have to right. reject the authority of the church in order to build the foundation that you have any possibility of any other church. So let me flip the script and now ask you to name one or two issues that you had difficulty with that were, that were difficult for you to work through. Well, I suppose that the most difficult one was Mary. And um, I mean, so other issues that I had were like justification or salvation and the Eucharist. But of those, I found that I could, pretty easily deal with those it was really mary that was to be contended with i suppose mm-hmm. immaculate conception in particular <laughs> well okay so i think it was all but the first one that she is the mother of god i'm like sure that's just basic christology right if you don't right. you know the logic checks out really easy with that one i know yeah, that some contemporary protestants, yeah. <laughs> right i know some contemporary protestants are like trying to kind of argue against that, but I'm honestly saying like, okay, well then you fall into Nestorianism or you fall into all these other heresies. It's just really right. easy and simple to just say she's the mother of God. Right. Um, right. Uh, so that wasn't a problem. I think the other issues were the perpetual virginity of Mary the immaculate conception, and the assumption, the three other dogmas. Okay. See, to me, the assumption is easy. It's right there in revelation 12. Um, 
As a Catholic <laughs> apologist, I'll be honest with you. The one that I have the that I have the most difficulty defending, and I absolutely believe that is true. But mm-hmm. I have a, the the hardest time getting it across is the Immaculate Conception because yeah. it's not explicitly in Scripture. You've got to kind of build a lot of different pieces. Um, so how mm-hmm. did that? First of all, how did that come together for you? How did the the pieces finally fit together on the Immaculate Conception, and then how do you go and defend that doctrine if somebody questions you about it today? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think for me, what got everything going with Mary was when I realized that the Ark of the Covenant was a real typology, and uh, it was intent- it was intended by Luke for us to see Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant and uh, you know, I should say, too, that of all the Gospels, I think Luke has the highest Mariology. You know, Elizabeth tells her in that Gospel that she will be called blessed for all generations. She's referred to as the mother of the Lord or mother mm-hmm. of my Lord. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's pretty high praise, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, people object to the calling Mary the mother of God. Then what do you do with Elizabeth calling Mary the mother of my Lord? Who else is my Lord but God? Anyway, right. so um, – when I saw that Luke was really saying that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, and you know, I, I looked at like what did Luke mean in the immediate context by that, and it, it means in some sense that at, le- at least what I think Luke was getting at, Saint Luke, is that uh, in some way Mary had become a holy dwelling place for the Lord to enter. Uh, so she was really elevated by uh, the incarnation. She really was kind of fulfilling her life purpose and mission. And then when I look back at the Ark of the Covenant, I noticed certain things about it that were striking to me. So moving then from the immediate context into now some theological consequences, you were kind of describing like the the pieces, right? And so this would kind of be like phase two, if you will. It might not all be in phase one, but it naturally leads to phase two. Uh, In the Septuagint, which is once again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, you, you see, for example, that the wood of the ark is made out of acacia wood, and it's called right. incorruptible wood right. in the Septuagint. Mm-hmm. In or fact, even... in the Douay version, uh, there's a psalm, I think, is, isn't it 132, that says, Arise, <laughs> Lord, yeah. into heaven, and take with you the ark of the covenant made of incorruptible wood? Well, isn't that Psalm 132? Uh, me... Yeah, so that is definitely one uh, Psalm 132, verse 8. I'm not familiar with what the Dewey Ream specifically says there, but you did get the citation right. Um, yeah. But, I mean, that would make total sense because in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Bible that the apostles would have had, right, in, in there it describes the Ark of the Covenant as made of incorruptible wood and the gold of the Ark being pure. And so, like, you know, this, this is just an inference. This is just an idea. But, like, from the very beginning – of the ark's conception from its the ark's creation it was designed for its purpose and because it was designed for its purpose it was always made pure it was always made incorruptible so i kind of thought well if mary's whole point in her life was to bring us the, the god the son to the son of god then wouldn't it make sense that god would prepare her from the very beginning for that mission right. and like the ark she would be made pure and incorruptible hmm. yeah so let me just throw at you really quick the way that I've argued this point, and I want to kind of get your sure. thoughts on it. Um, so, and I argued this point to someone. I said, I said, what did the Ark of the Covenant hold inside of it? 
And he says, well, yeah, it, held yeah. the, it held the Ten Commandments. I said, right, the Word of God, right? And he said, well, yeah. I said, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I said, so the Word of God is a person. He said, okay. I said, what else did the ark hold inside of it? It held the manna, the bread from heaven. And Jesus says of himself, I am the true bread that comes from heaven. He who eats this bread will, will live forever, and, and I will raise him on the last day. I said, what else did it hold? It held the staff of Aaron, who was a shepherd and the high priest. Well, mm-hmm. Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd who lays his life for his sheep. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the high priest. I said, so the shepherd is a person. The high priest is a person, right? And he said, okay. I said, I said do you know who Uzzah was? And he said, yes. Yeah. Uh, and he said, no. And I said, well, Uzzah, you know, he didn't mean any harm. The, the, the ark had become unsteady on the cart, and Uzzah thought it might fall on the ground. And he reaches up, and he touches it to steady it, and he struck that on the spot. I said, so the ark had become so holy because of these symbols of Jesus. Inside of it, it had become so holy that a man couldn't even touch it. He'd be struck dead. And he said, okay. I said, well, Mary held the real Jesus inside of her. Mm-hmm. So how holy must she be? And that that was the argument that I used. I just wanted your thoughts. No, I mean, I so that, that's an argument, too, that I think could even further support the point of the Immaculate Conception of Mary and uh, even the, the typology between the Ark of the Covenant and Mary. Although I, I will say, though, that um, I think what a Protestant might say in response is, but I want <laughs> I want the text to say it itself, right? Uh, I want it, the text to do a bit more than you having to put all the pieces together, right? Because when you do that, they kind of start feeling a little squeamish. But I think – here's what I'll say. Uh, have already it established that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant in a way. Like that, that's something that Scripture is aware of, um, right. as I mentioned before, with like the very certain t- uh, textual allusion between Luke and, um, the, and Exodus. You can build on that typology. So, you know, let's take John chapter 6. We already know that Jesus is the new Moses that's established in Matthew's gospel. That's established in Peter's Pentecost sermon when he references Deuteronomy 18.15, where it talks about how a prophet like Moses will arise from among the Israelites. Uh, so we already know that Jesus is the new Moses. When we go to John chapter 6, there's some interesting connections, right, between Moses and Christ there that we can see. So to give you one example, uh, when, the, uh, when, the, when the Jewish crowds there are murmuring about Jesus' teachings, the Greek word that's used there, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but I think it starts with an M anyway, or um, a mu. Anyway, the, the Greek word that's used there is also used in the Septuagint to refer to when the Israelites murmured under Moses. Interesting. Interesting. And I Mo- never made that connection. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, you would just think, oh, it's a coincidence, right? But then when you have in the background the typology of Moses and the Israelites, then you can actually see that something that would just seem like a coincidence suddenly doesn't become a coincidence anymore. Right, right. And so if you have Mary and the Ark of the Covenant, then when you see other connections, those aren't coincidences anymore. Those are biblically validated. Right. It's kind of interesting that you point to Luke, though. That's, I, I find that interesting, and I, you know, sometimes when I hear something, I got to kind of roll it around in my mind for a while. <laughs> but yeah, it, because to me, the obvious, the one that jumps off the page to me of Mary as the Ark of the Covenant is John's Revelation, the end of chapter oh, eleven, right. segueing into chapter twelve. 
to me, it jumps right off the page when he says, I looked in the temple and I saw the Ark of the Covenant, a woman clothed with a son. To me, that's when it really, you know, I, that's when the light came on to me that Mary was the Ark of the Covenant. So it's just, it's just interesting that it just shows how the Holy Spirit works. He, he, he reveals the truth to one person one way and to another person another way, but we all wind up at, at, the, at the same place. It just, it just really, really, really fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. how, how much do you, what, what are your thoughts on now? You know, we, we, we tend to look at a lot of times we look at the future uh, interpretations of, of, and certainly the gospels. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus made all kinds of predictions about, you know, the demise of the, uh, of, of Jerusalem and the temple and, and things beyond that. Uh, what do you think about people who who tend to, and even Catholics who tend to have an obsession can't get out of the Book of <laughs> Revelation? They have a, an obsession with end time things. Uh, do, do you encounter a, a lot of that? Well, I encountered it a lot as a Protestant, you know, because of like the Left Behind series and all that. You know, that was still uh, uh, part of my childhood, and, and people getting excited about the end of the world and all the signs coming to pass and, and all that. Um, you know, I mean, one is that the book of revelation, it's a, it's a very, it's a very complicated book and you have to tread carefully with it. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are things that I think very clearly apply to the time that uh, John was writing in. Uh, there are other things though. I mean, so sure. for example, like the church in Ephesus, right? The church in Ephesus doesn't exist anymore. So obviously there's some things that are bound to his time He's sending a message. Uh, but there are other things that I think can speak to us today that are foreshadowing what is to come. So like when the dead, uh, all of them are before the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, that's really going to happen. Uh, right, right. When, uh, you know, when, when, when the heavenly Jerusalem comes out of the sky and in some way we get a new heaven and a new earth. I mean, Jesus even emphasizes how he's going to make all things new. Uh, right. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, just to make a, a long story short, uh, we can be excited about it, but we shouldn't be fretting over the end because, you know, we should be vigilant. Obviously, Christ talks about being vigilant and ready for when he returns, but he also says things like no man knows the hour. So then what's the point of uh, kind of fretting over every little sign? But, but I mean, clearly they're in, they're in, there are people who are in timing scriptures that do not refer to the end times. Uh, oh, for, I see. For instance, Revelation 17 and 18 is clearly about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's what it's about. Mm. Uh, and and um, even in Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus breaks it down. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he segues into the end times and the second coming. Um, but you know, like you said, you people, you know, are writing these books like the like the Left Behind series, and <laughs> I, I just find. You know, sometimes I tell people, I say, you know, a lot of Christians spend too much time in the book of Revelation and the book of Genesis, and they need to spend more mm. time in the Gospels. They're they're trying right. to figure out how God created the world, and they're trying to figure out how God's going to end the world. Well, why don't you figure out how you're supposed to live in the world? <laughs> and then no, everything I mean, else. that's a valid point. Everything else will yeah, take I mean, care of itself. You know, to give you like another example, which I've seen. Uh, you know, with with controversies in the church today, if I if I may mention this one, mm-hmm. um, people will talk about how John 
remained at the cross, but Peter abandoned Christ on the cross. And some people will try to say, oh, well, you know, I'm with John, maybe this individual bishop that they really like today uh, representing John, but Peter's left Christ on the cross, and they're referring to the Holy Father, the Roman pontiff today. And, you know, so that's one interpretation that people have where they look at that and anagogically, uh, uh, or maybe even, well, depending on how you look at it, maybe even allegorically, symbolically, and apply it to our present circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I mean, one of, one of the interesting things about that interpretation is, in, in one sense, like, it's true that you want to be John. You, you, want, you want to remain faithful. But you can't forget what Jesus said in Luke 22, which is that he had committed the care of the other apostles into Peter's fold, into Peter's shepherding. And so some people will try to be John and leave Peter, leave his fold. And it's like, no, you're not supposed to do that, right? Um, that uh, is a but very, you, very interesting, um, <laughs> provocative take there. I, I, I really um, – wow, I, I'm shook by what you just said there because – I can definitely draw parallels to our time there where, where people are actually trying to out Catholic the Pope. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're, 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 you know, and, um, you know, to me, um, you know, is, is, is Francis perfect? No. Um, I, I really wish they would do something about their public relations and communications that could definitely be improved. The messaging is mm-hmm. not the greatest in the world, uh, but he's the Holy father. He is the Holy Father, and, and we know that he's not going to bind us uh, in anything that's going to be untrue or harmful to us. And, and you know, that part of that is that, that you know, that testing of faith, that, that we need to see the church as a, as a human institution and a divine institution. And that, mm-hmm. uh, in that great mystery is how is God working his divine will through fallible human beings? And yet, all you have to do is, you know, look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and that's what you see. You see God working his divine will through fallible human beings. And sometimes he picked the most unlikely characters. <laughs> Moses had said he was the meekest mm-hmm. man on earth, and, and, and Peter was a, was a fisherman. And, uh, um, and, and that gives hope to, you know, to, to guys like me that maybe don't have it all together, <laughs> don't have all the answers, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, that, that God can work through, through anyone, you know, where they're at. And, uh, it's just, a it, it, it's just, it's just really fascinating. So what would you recommend, um, for somebody who's really interested, a, a, a Catholic who's really interested in going deeper into the, into the scriptures and taking it to the next level and understanding some of these concepts. What are some resources that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, there's so many possible things that I could recommend. Um, obviously, uh, you have uh, from people like Scott Hahn, John Bergsma, you know, mm-hmm. translations of the Old Testament, commentaries on the Old Testament. They've written works of biblical theology. If you want to look there, that's really good. Um, especially like uh, Kinship Through Covenant by Scott Hahn, where he talks about kind of, he, he, he looks at the scriptures and he sees covenant as kind of this unifying theme in biblical theology. Yeah. Um, 
That word there, appears I mean, in old... scripture over four hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean that that probably means something, right? Yeah, um, I would say so. <laughs> and then you know you can also look at like the church documents on the interpretation of scripture. So one possibility is um, you know let's say the pontifical biblical commissions, the interpretation of the Bible in the church. You might look at that. Uh, you could also look into De Verbum of the Second Vatican Council, which is, I think, a great document. Uh, but I would also recommend that people go and pick up a commentary from like a reputable source. And especially like um, the, if I'm not mistaken, it's Ignatius that has uh, the whole Bible, basically, um, mm-hmm. the whole Bible commentary. And uh, I would say look into that because that one is really good. What do you is that think about Ignatius or the Bill? Augustine Institute? Sorry, say that again. What do you think about Collegeville? Collegeville's Bible commentary. Uh, I haven't heard of that one, so I can't okay. comment on it. Um, but I will say that like another good one that I've heard about is the Navarre Bible mm-hmm. commentary. Mm-hmm. If I'm not mistaken, that one actually has like the Church Fathers in the footnotes, so <laughs> you won't be reading yeah. alone. The the only thing about Navarre is like it's it's multiple multiple volumes whereas collegeville is a is a is a single volume Uh, so um that that's why i brought it up i have the collegeville commentary i was just wondering what you thought how how about study bibles do you have a particular what do you think of the ascension study bible the revised standard version ascension version what do you think of that yeah i mean so as you know there's so many possible commentaries and study bibles so uh i'm not familiar with that one in particular uh, my favorite translation is the NASB, although unfortunately it only has the Protestant canon. So when I go to like a Catholic scripture, uh, I look at like the NRSV or the mm-hmm. ESV. Those are some good ones. Um, but, uh, you know, and I, I'm trying to right now learn and read the original Greek. And so I have the ESV interlinear Bible, which is based off of the uh, Nestle Allon's 28th edition of the Greek text. So those are mm-hmm. some things that I use as study guides. Yeah, the faith database is something that I use. It's very, very helpful. It has uh, the, the Greek interliner version, like you said. It has it actually has 10 different Bible versions that you can compare yeah. side, to, side to side and has, uh, you know, all the early church fathers and the, and the, and the Vatican documents. And it, I, it's like you said, there's there's literally no end to the number of resources that that you can uh, you know that you can choose from. Let's uh, let's talk real quick. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes left. Talk real quick about your go-to um, online sources, podcasts that you recommend, yeah. YouTube channels that you recommend. I, I'd just be very interested in hearing that. Well, you know, Catholic Answers is just really a great go-to source. It, it's very accessible. Uh, it basically has almost any issue that you can think of. So obviously I'd recommend that. Um, I would also recommend, uh, there's a rising YouTube channel called uh, the Catholic brothers. They're really good. They're, they're two brothers who are formerly Protestants. They studied um, ancient Christianity. They, I think have a master's degree or whatever. So they're, they're pretty advanced. And it was through their studies that they became Catholic and in their uh, podcast, they talk about things like what was the mass like in the first century? Um, mm-hmm. uh, they talk about, you know, interpreting the councils and all that. And so that's a really great source. Um, I really like what my friend Michael Lofton is doing at Reason and Theology with just 
you know, responding to Protestant criticisms and defending mm-hmm. the Bible and defending the magisterium. Uh, I guess another good source that I could mention very briefly is, uh, well, obviously the Council of Trent by Trent Horn. And uh, yeah, maybe last I'll, yeah, last I'll mention is Eric Ybarra in his podcast, Classical Christian he's, Thought. He's also yeah, great. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so these are like the heavy hitters that I'm mentioning. I mean, if you want to take it to the next level, these are the guys to consider. Well, I'm hoping that at some point, someday, you'll be adding the four persons to that list. That's what we're shooting for. That's what yeah. we're hoping for. And uh, you didn't ask me the question that everybody inevitably asked me, so uh, I'm just wondering if you've already figured it out, what the, who the four persons are. Well, I know you, John, um, <laughs> but – uh, beyond that, I don't know. <laughs> I can just hear okay. a voice in the background, a voice in the wilderness crying out, but that's it. <laughs> um, a Catholic counselor years ago that was uh, referred to us by Catholic Charities. My my family was going through some awful, awful stuff. We had to put a family member in prison for 20 years. And um, trying to help me understand what my... <clears throat> daughters were going through at the time this Catholic counselor broke it down to me and said you need to understand that each person is four persons and I looked at her like she had three heads (laughs) (laughs) yeah I was like that was the craziest thing that I'd ever heard and she broke it down to me she says you're a mental person an emotional person a spiritual person and a physical Mm -hmm. person and she went down Mm -hmm. to break down how each one of those four persons must be healthy and 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 if one of them is unhealthy it's going to affect the other three and and um so one day i just happened to be opening up the bible and, and you know you ever do that open it up to wherever it opens up to and i opened up to mark chapter 12 verse 30 and it says the greatest commandment is you shall love the lord your god with your whole heart your whole mind your whole soul and your whole strength there's the four persons right there, and it, mm. it just had such an impact on me that that's what we've built this uh, apostolate uh, around, and that's what we're that's the message that we're continuing to uh, you know to try to get out that you know true worship has to be it can't be halfway you can't give God half your mind or half your soul or half your heart uh, you have to be all in you're all in or you're or you're not in at all anyway that's that's the message. That's what the four persons is about. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a beautiful story, and uh, you know I wish I could say that my channel <laughs> had a bit of a more moving story, but I just thought this was catchy, intellectual Catholicism, so I'll run with it. Um, but you know I did change the name after I left the Dominican Order. I was there for four months as a novice, and um, I realized coming back that you know before it was called intellectual conservatism and uh, conserving, you know, the ancient Catholic and Christian tradition on morality and ethics and other things as well, aesthetics, beauty. And then I realized that, well, you know, I'm Catholic and uh, <laughs> um, I, I really identify more as, let's say, a Catholic than I would just as a conservative, right? Because that can mean so many things. Whereas the Catholic, you know, it's pretty straightforward what it means, uh, given, you know, what the church teaches. And so I decided to change my channel's name with the approval of my bishop, because uh, under canon law, you know, if you want to use the word Catholic, you need the approval of your um, bishop. So I did that. And, um, you know, that's where I am now. 
Yeah, you bring up an interesting point um, there. Uh, at, at the end is um, a lot of there's a lot of rogue, uh, <laughs> a lot of rogue po- podcasts and apostolates that uh, that aren't faithful to the church that are not showing that fidelity to the bishops. And uh, I, one of the examples that I run across all the time is uh, a lot of people that are promoting a lot of these uh, private revelations that have been condemned. I mean, some of them that have been, you know, multiple bishops have condemned them. The Vatican has condemned them. One uh, in particular, i give you an example, is Our Lady of All Nations, Amsterdam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Vatican issued a memorandum that said, do not promote Mary under this title. Do not do it. And and yet you got people out there out there doing it. Um, um, so I, I don't know how I would go about um, – Getting the official sanction of the church, or going about getting uh, per- permission of, of the bishops, maybe that's something that I need to to walk through. But that's one thing that we're that we're faithful at here is that we absolutely are obedient to the church and the message of the church. Swan, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, I I hope maybe we can have you on again in in the future, uh, or maybe I can. Jump on over to your onto your YouTube channel one day, and uh, you know, kind of join in what you're doing over there. Uh, one more time, give everybody the uh, addresses of uh, everything that you're that you're involved with, please. Yeah, so there's Intellectual Catholicism. It's a YouTube channel, and it's on Apple Podcasts. I have an Academia.edu page, which has my presentations and you know uh, papers. If you're interested in the works I've done on other channels, look at Catholic Answers. You'll see me there on their YouTube, on their podcasts, on their articles. Uh, I've done work with the Council of Trent, if you're interested in Trent Horn, and uh, a lot of other places too, but those are kind of the main ones I'll mention here. Yeah, who isn't interested in Trent Horn? He's, uh, I think he's, <laughs> one, of the, he's one of the greatest, uh, one of the great apologists, uh, you know, of our time, I think. Right. Um, but uh, I think we got... I think we got some pretty good ones here too. So I think we're, you know, we're building something. We're we're trying to build something really, really good here. And uh, uh, I'll continue to to pray for uh, the work that you're doing. And I'd ask you when when you got time uh, to pray for us. In fact, if you right. would honor us by by closing us with a prayer now, please. All right, sure. Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I call upon you now, your Holy Spirit, your Blessed Mother, the angels and saints, Christ, your most precious heart. I call upon all of you to be with us as we end this show, as we go our separate ways. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. Lord, thank you for all that you've given to us. And I pray that you will help us to be closer to your heart through your Blessed Mother, through your saints who shine forth your glory. And Lord, help us to look at their example, at the example of Christ on the cross, at the example of Christ, the only, only one who fully and truly loves us and knows us completely. And help us, Lord, to love him as you have loved us. God, help us to be more and more like you each day. And thank you for the four persons. Bless them too. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.
Amen. Thank you so much, Swan, and I look forward to the uh, the next time we cross paths again. God bless you, and have a wonderful weekend. Yep. Thank you.